wonderful always to be able to preach, and I really hope that you will be encouraged this morning. Um, as Anne said, before Christmas, we were doing our Living Hope series um, on uh, uh, 1 Peter, and we got to the end of chapter 2. And so during the first part of January, we were doing our vision series, looking at what it means to be rooted in Christ, planted in family, and fruitful in our lives. Um, and just to say, uh, we our children have gone up the road, as Anne said, so... Uh, we do have our hedgehogs group upstairs as normal and our bunnies. So if any children need, miss the, the walking bus up to City Church, you're welcome to go upstairs if that's also helpful for you this morning. Um, but I'm going to start off with 1 Peter 3 verses 1 to 7. Um, this morning I'm actually only really going to touch on up to verse 6, but... Um, and then next week, Ant will do that portion because it says, likewise, husbands. So I think he's more qualified to speak on that than me. So this is from verse 3, verse 1. It says, 1 Peter 3, verse 1. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. And verse 7, I'll just throw in for good measure, says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So I know that... Those are Paul, uh, Peter's words, and we have some equivalent passages in Paul's letters dealing with marriage and the role of men and women um, as expressed in the church. And I know that for many of us, these can sit with a little uncomfortably, and we can start to wrestle with some of the things that are expressed in that. But I really hope today, uh, I hope I will represent to you God's heart in these different passages. And what I want to start off with looking at is the cultural and historical context of the whole s struggle of gender inequality and gender stereotypes that has been a battle through the centuries and very much prevalent in the debates that we are seeing today. Um, so the first thing I want to do, I've got some pictures up, uh, Sean, or, or sorry, Ken, if you could put up the first one. And uh, this is a picture of an amazing lady called Caroline Norton. And in 1845, she lived during the reign of King George III, just to give you a bit of a historical timeline. She published a paper uh, called English Laws for Women in the 19th Century. And during this period, a married woman under the law had no rights at all. She wasn't a citizen. She was just a person who probably cooked meals. She had no rights. Um, and... Caroline Norton wrote in one of her campaigning pamphlets, in the case of a married woman, she does not exist. 
her husband exists. Um, I've got an amazing book, I mean, to bring it to show you. It's called Invisible Woman. And it just looks at how women all across the world are invisible within society, just quietly getting on with their lives. But that the world has been structured in a way um, not to, to give them the, the rights and the, the things that they need to live and to thrive, <clears throat> even from transport to all kinds of things in different third world contexts. But that's just a, another story. This is uh, what ha was like back in the, the 19th century. Women had no rights uh, to their own money or even to their own children. And so some of them were subject to abuse and control at the risk of losing their financial provision and the right to raise their own children. And we hear stories of really courageous women uh, like the 19-year-old Millicent Fawcett, who organized the first petition for women's suffrage. Suffrage means the right to vote, back in 1897. And even though she was even too young to sign the petition herself, she, through the efforts of all the suffragette movement, had a, a growing following of about 50,000 women. And uh, after much struggle, imprisonment, uh, they, they had uh, hunger strikes, and some died, the suffragette movement finally secured the vote for women in 1928. That's not very long ago. <laughs> in 1928, it's a hundred years ago that's, that, the, that women in this country and across the world have only been able to have the vote. And we see Fawcett later died in uh, age 84, a year later after the, the vote was won for women. Now I want to tell you about another woman who is my absolute hero. Uh, I love to talk about her. Her name is Malala Yousafzai, and uh, she was born in Mingora in Pakistan on the 12th of J July 1997, so she's a, a year older than my son, Matthew. Her father, Ziadin Yousafzai, was determined when she was born that he was going to give her every opportunity that a boy would have. And he was a teacher, and he ran a, a school for girls in his village. And Malala absolutely loved school. But everything changed in 2008 when the Taliban took control of their town in Swat Valley. And it, the extremists banned many things. You weren't allowed to have a television. You weren't allowed to listen to music. And anyone who contravened these harsh enforcements were very severely punishment, punished. Sorry. Um, and one of the things that they said is that girls could no longer attend school. Um, Malala, as she was, she was homeschooled by her parents, but she began to get a growing voice to speak out publicly on behalf of girls and their right to learn. And this made her a target for the Taliban. Um, in October 2012, when she was only age 15, on her way home from school, a masked gunman boarded her school bus and asked, who is Malala? Uh, he then shot her in the left side of her head, leaving her for dead. Uh, Malala was uh, obviously taken by ambulances and she was flown to a hospital in Birmingham in England. And, uh, and in 2014, years after surgeries and rehabilitation, her family finally joined her in, in the UK and they settled there. Um, it was then that she knew she had a choice. I could live a quiet life 
or I could make the most of this new life I had been given. And, I det- and she says, I determined to continue my fight until every girl could go to school. With my father, who has always been my ally and inspiration, I established Malala Fund, a charity dedicated to giving every girl an opportunity to achieve a future she chooses. And in recognition for her work, Malala received the Nobel Peace Prize in 2014, and she became the youngest ever Nobel laureate. And wonderfully, during lockdown in 2020, she graduated with a degree from Oxford University. Amazing, amazing young woman. We've come through, in this last century, we had two world wars, and that led to an incredible change in the social structure and gender roles in the West, with women taking on jobs in factories, farming, and in the intelligence services. However, if you read some sociological studies, in recent studies, there's still a great disparity and difference in perceptions of men and women and how they are stereotypically perceived. And men are stereotypically still perceived as more competent, ambitious, assertive, and competitive, while women are seen typically as more communal, supportive, caring, warm, and emotional. And this has often led women to have to prove themselves more arduously in asserting their competency and qualification in leadership roles. It's very interesting that women CEOs make up only 6% of the Fortune 500 list of companies in America. Uh, And these companies that boast a higher representation of women on their boards notably outperform organizations that don't. And furthermore, studies have also outlined that companies that have greater gender diversity, not just within their workforce, but also in their leadership, in their senior leadership team, are significantly more profitable than those without. So that is the world that we live in. I want to say, yay to women, whoa, (laughs) come on, yay to women. And this is not a, a women's rights campaign. Yay to men too. I love men as well. Uh, it just so happens Peter's emphasizing women in this message. Um, but given this very brief historical and contextual um, explanation of the roles of men and women in society, how do we begin to reconcile Peter's words in 1 Peter 3, verse 1 to 7, addressing wives and the way that they should conduct themselves in marriage and society? First of all, let me say, just to give a a bit of a context to this passage, let me say that I've heard many teachings on this passage and the parallel verses where the Apostle Paul teaches into biblical patterns in marriage. And one thing that I cannot find in keeping with the way that Jesus lived his life and affirmed women and the examples of womanly courage in the Old and New Testaments is when these passages have been used to entrench patriarchal control and oppression of women. I cannot tolerate that. (laughs) That is not the heart of Jesus, and certainly not the intention of Peter when he writes these verses. As soon as someone hears the words, wives, submit to your husbands, I don't know if there's some women in here, but like the hairs on the back of your Necker. <laughs> not because they're not godly words, they are. 
but it's because how they have been applied. I'm giving my age away, but some of you may remember a program in the 1970s uh, with the famous dog trainer, Barbara Woodhouse. Does anyone remember her? So she had this very, in this thing that she said she could control the most unruly dog, and people would bring their dogs to her for dog training. And she had this, these three simple commands that she gave the dogs, and it was amazing. They worked. So the first one was well, she got the dog, and she had this hand signal, and she said, sit. And she did that, and the dog would sit. And she trained this dog, and she'd go, sit. And then she would go, stay. So, then she, so the dog would go, sit, stay. And then she would walk off, and she'd go, walkies. And then the dog would trundle after her. And that was Barbara Woodhouse. I don't know. How many, as a matter of interest, how many? Oh, there's a lot of people who remember her. It's, if you were around in the 70s, you'll remember her. But um, when these verses have been preached as if women are to sit, stay, wookies, that's not the heart of God for women or for the marriage relationship. And the second thing I want to say that is important to reconsider the overall context of what Peter has been addressing in the letter to the, this letter to the Corinthians dispersed across Asia at the time. We need to just take a little step back when we look at the context of these verses in the, in the rest of the chapter before. Because in 1 Peter 2, this is the parts we spoke about before Christmas, in 1 Peter 2 verse 13 to 14, Peter says these words, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. And then in 1 Peter 2 verse 18, it says, Servants, be subject to your masters, or slaves, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. You see, there's a flow to Peter's thoughts. Remember, at the beginning of chapter 2, he says these words, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct amongst the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So now Peter is unpacking three different scenarios where they will all face incredible waging of war in their hearts, where they will be tempted to behave in a fleshly way. But he has exhorted them, keep your conduct honorable. Keep your conduct honorable. Because you see, these people that Peter is writing to, he knows the challenges of these Christians, and they are not easy. They are in exile, spread out across Asia, under the brutal Roman regime and oppression. Some of them are household slaves with cruel masters. And now we read that some of the women were in challenging marriages where their husbands were either not believers or did not treat them kindly. 
And so into each of these challenging contexts, Peter brings the same exhortation. Don't wage war, but be submissive to these different authority figures in your lives, even when they mistreat you. Three of the most oppressed stratas of society at the time, exiled and persecuted refugees, slaves and women. I don't think that in many parts of the world, even today, in 2,000 years later, this has even changed, those three groups, that demographic. But why does Peter say, be subject to or submit to these authority figures? It just seems so counterintuitive. We know that already, it's, he said in verse 12, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. You see, Peter was interested in the Christians being a light to the Gentiles and to bring glory to God through how they behaved when they were being oppressed. He says to the slaves, but if you do good and suffer for it, you endure, for this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. See, this is a picture and evidence of God's grace at work in you. It's not natural to be submissive to a cruel master, but when you are submissive, you display to them the grace of God. There is something very, very powerful at work. The grace of God to be humble and thereby to convict and bring repentance to those who do not know God or his ways. And so in the chapter that we're looking at, when we come to chapter 3, Paul has talked about to rulers, he's talked about to slave masters, and now he says, likewise. In other words, in the same way that these difficult situations force you to rely on the grace of God, so too, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if they do not obey the word, that they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. You see, the goal of submission is that we become a picture of Christ to those who may mistreat or oppress us. There is a bigger picture here than just our personal suffering. And that is why Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 to 24, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. And when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Peter is saying that when we have a submissive attitude in challenging and difficult relationships, that this is how God powerfully uses our suffering to bring about his salvation in the lives of others.
doesn't that turn things on its head? Doesn't that give purpose to the difficult things you're going through? Jesus is our great example. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus did not give into that war that raged in his soul to strike back. He did not threaten. And even though he had all the resources in heaven to wipe out his oppressors, but he placed his trust in God to work things out and to bring about justice in the end. This is very powerful. This is not to be a doormat for people to walk over. This is submission as a quiet dignity that holds back and shows restraint because you can trust God to work in this situation by his supernatural empowering grace in you and through you. A literary device that's often used in the New Testament, Jesus used it, Paul used it in his letters, and we see here Peter doing the same thing, is the principle of the lesser and the greater, or the worse and the better. Peter is saying that if you are called to be submissive in the most challenging of relationships with rulers, masters, and difficult husbands, then it is doubly true that you are called to be submissive when these relationships are godly and healthy in their outworking. If it's true in this situation, it must be true in, this, in a godly and healthy situation too. And we read as we continue in 1 Peter 3 verses 8 to 12, Peter tells the whole church to have unity and sympathy and love and tenderness and humility towards one another and not to return evil for evil. In other words, submit to each other and serve each other. Submission is a wider church virtue for all of us to pursue. And it has its unique and fitting expressions in various relationships. So I'm going to go back specifically now to this portion in uh, 1 Peter 3 where he looks more at submission within marriage. So what does submission in marriage look like? I think a good place to start is what submission is not. And um, from this, these, these points in this specific part, I've just uh, taken some thoughts from John Piper. I think he, he speaks so wonderfully on this. So John Piper says this. He says, the first thing is that submission does not mean agreeing with what your husband says. Yes. <laughs> you can see in verse 1, she is a Christian, he is not. He has one set of ideas about ultimate reality, she has another. Peter calls her to be submissive while assuming that she will not submit to his view of the most important thing in the world, God. So submission can't mean submitting to agree with everything that her husband thinks. And hopefully there is agreement on most things, but if there's something that is central and pivotal, it, it's, submission does not always mean agreeing. Secondly, submission does not mean leaving your brain 
or your will at the wedding altar. It is not the inability or the unwillingness to think for yourself. Here is a woman who heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. She thought about it. She assessed the truth, the claims of Jesus. She apprehended in her heart the beauty and worth of Christ and his work, and she chose him. Her husband heard it also. Otherwise, Peter would probably say he did he wouldn't have said he disobeyed the word. He has heard the word and he's thought about it and he has not chosen Christ. She thought for herself and she acted. Peter does not tell her to retreat from that commitment. Thirdly, submission does not mean avoiding every effort to change your husband. The whole point of this text is to tell the wife how to win her husband. Verse 1 says, Be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. If you didn't care what the Bible might say, you would think submission has to mean just taking your husband the way he is and not trying to change him. But if you believe what the Bible says, you conclude that submission, paradoxically, is sometimes a strategy for changing him. Ironically, submission does not mean putting the will of the husband before the will of Christ. The text clearly teaches that the wife is the follower of Jesus before and above being a follower of her husband. Submission to Jesus relativizes submission to husbands and governments and employers and parents. When, when Sarah called Abraham Lord, in verse 6, it was Lord in a lowercase with a little L. It's like calling him Sir or my Lord as a sign of respect. And the obedience that she rendered to Abraham is a qualified obedience because her supreme allegiance, first and foremost, is to her Lord with a capital L, Jesus. Then submission also does not mean that a wife gets her personal spiritual strength primarily through her husband. A good husband should indeed strengthen and build up and sustain his wife. He should be a source of strength. But what this text shows is that when a husband's spiritual leadership is lacking, a Christian wife is not bereft of strength. Submission does not mean she is dependent on him to supply her strength of faith and virtue and character. The text, in fact, assumes just the opposite. She is summoned to develop depth and strength and character, not from her husband, but through her hope in God, in hope that her husband will join her there. And sometimes submission is quietly through your example and praying to God that he will bring your husband into that place of, of strength if he's not in a place of spiritual strength. Finally, submission does not mean that a wife is to act out of fear. Verses 6b of that portion says, You are her, in other words, Sarah's children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening, 
In other words, submission is free. It's not coerced by fear. The Christian woman is a free woman. When she submits to her husband, whether, she's a believe, whether he is a believer or an unbeliever, she does it in freedom, not out of fear. It is her choice to submit. It can't be that she's being bullied to submit. So that's what John Piper says submission is not. So what is submission? Um, I hope that you're all still following me and not getting too tired. So these are some thoughts that I think Ant and I have tried to understand how we've worked out our marriage, and I've just we've learned these over the years, and they're values that we hold to in our marriage, and I hope they will be helpful for you. So what is submission? I want to say, first of all, I believe that submission is trust in God rather than resorting to manipulation and control to get your way. It's about prayerfully finding your strength in God's presence and trusting him to change your husband or your wife <laughs> as only the Holy Spirit can. Because as soon as we start to wheedle and needle and try and get our way to change someone, we just sow into ugly things like manipulation and sulking and all of those things. But God calls us to trust the Holy Spirit to bring the change that needs to happen. And I do want to say, I, I've heard people preach about marriage as if there's some people around here that have perfect marriages. I've never met anyone with a perfect marriage. We don't have a perfect marriage. There's no such thing. I think there's one. Oh, yes, there's one. Jesus, when he comes back for his bride one day. But I just want to set you free. There's no perfect marriage. But when we find God's way, he allows us to walk in a healthy and restored way. But there's no perfect marriage because there's no perfect. I'm not perfect, and it's not perfect, so we don't have a perfect marriage. So just take yourself, free yourself, okay? That's going to be the journey. And as we submit ourselves to Christ, as we allow him to work in our hearts, as we trust him, he brings our marriages into a fragrant, wonderful sense of his good purposes in his life. Submission is a way of respecting as a wife that your husband is the one who must give an account for his care, protection, and guidance of his family to God. And even if your husband messes up and he fails, submission is helping him to see his failings without recrimination and being preachy and go, ha, I told you so. You messed up. That's not submission. <laughs> I don't always get that right. Honor is not about exposing his failings or weakness, but helping him to be the husband and father he's called to be through prayer and patiently walking alongside. When, when we got married, uh, we, had, we wrote our own marriage vows. Um, but this is what we promised each other. We promised to help each other become all that God intends for us to be. And so in our marriage, sometimes we can be challenging each other, and it can be a bit scratchy. But we are committed to each other to actually help each other become the people that God is. We want to see Jesus formed in us. And uh, I want to say to some women, I've seen this, this, this for, 
it's been a sadness to me where some women feel that they cannot even speak or challenge their husbands. And I think that if we do it in an unkind, ungracious way, that is not godly and that's not submissive. But if we are too afraid to approach some subjects because it's too prickly and too, too scary, we need to trust God to find a way to help us come and bring, and just the same, I'm speaking to husbands as well, that husbands and wives can speak to each other and challenge each other. There has to be that communication with each other, with a submissive, gracious heart. And then lastly, I want to say that submission is about being a team player. Every team needs a captain, but the captain on a football field doesn't need to score all the goals. Does it, does it work like that in football, that the team is going around and the captain says, hold it there, wait till I come so I can kick it into the goal? No, it's whoever scores the goal, fantastic. The win, that's that the team wins. And in a healthy team, people play according to their strengths and gifts, and it's the same in marriage. A good husband can celebrate when his wife shows gifting in areas that are not his strengths and is not threatened by this. And likewise, the wife comes alongside and works together with her husband on the game plan that they're aiming at. Uh, you see, because the team either wins or it loses together. Uh, on a team, you can't have one person winning and the other person losing. That, that's not a team. <laughs> the whole team wins or the whole team loses. <laughs> you can't say, well, I won that one. Sorry, mate. <laughs> No, you lost if one of them lost. Uh, submission is an outworking of being one in God. It's about compromise on both parties so that a big, the bigger picture of the family and God's calling can be outworked. Uh, I remember many, many years ago, uh, the Brazilian football team, I don't know which World Cup it was, but they had this little saying called playing happy football. They said the, the reason why they were winning so well was because they played happy football. It was about, as a team, they just loved passing and they learned how to play well with each other. And I think that's what submission is. It's playing happy football in your marriage. It's like enjoying the game um, without storming off the pitch and sulking and because the game didn't go your way. That's what submission is. Oh, no, we're all going to play together, and maybe I've got to give up a bit of my selfishness, and you've got to give a bit of your selfishness, and we're going to find the way together. But I, I do also want to say that submission does not follow a husband into sin. What then does submission say about that kind of situation? Submission says, it grieves me when you venture into sinful acts and want to take me with you. You know I can't do that. I have no desire to resist you. On the contrary, I flourish most when I can respond joyfully to your lead. But I can't follow you into sin as much as I love to honor your leadership in our marriage. Christ is my king. And now I'm going to say to Ant, I've got five more minutes and I've gone over time. Is that okay? Okay. Because I want to just finish all those verses. Um, because Peter, there's a real wonderful context to all these verses on how we are to understand submission. And there's a beautiful 
portrait of womanhood that I, I really just want to quickly end with. Peter paints a powerful portrait of womanhood in these, in these verses. And what we see is the deep, strong roots of womanhood underneath this fruit of submission. The roots make submission the strong and beautiful thing it is. So I'm just going to tell you a few, three things. Biblical womanhood hopes in God. And we see that's in verse 5. This is how the holy woman who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting them by submitting to their own husbands. You see, the deepest root of Christian womanhood is in this text is hope in God. Holy woman who hoped in God. A Christian woman does not put her hope in her husband or in getting a husband. She does not put her hope in her looks. She puts her hope in the promises of God. And she's described in Proverbs 31 verse 25, strength and dignity are clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. She laughs at everything the future will bring and might bring because she hopes in God. She looks away from the troubles and the miseries and the obstacles of life that seem to make the future bleak, and she focuses her attention on the sovereign power and love of God who rules in heaven and does whatever he pleases. She knows the word of God and her theology of the sovereignty of God, and she knows that his promises are true, and that he will strengthen her and help her no matter what. This is deep, unshakable Christian womanhood. And Peter makes it, makes it explicit in verse 5. He's not talking about just any woman. He's talking about women with unshakable biblical roots in the sovereign goodness of God, holy women who hope in God. That's why it's easy to be submissive when you have that in your heart. Then I want to say biblical womanhood is fearless. The next thing we see about Christian womanhood after hope in God is the fearlessness that it produces in these women. So verse 5 that says that the holy woman of God hoped in God. And then verse 6 gives Sarah... Abraham's wife, and as an example, and refers to all other Christian women as her daughters. You are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. So this portrait of Christian womanhood is first marked by hope in God, and then what grows from that hope, namely fearlessness. She does not fear the future. She laughs at the future. The presence of hope in the invincible sovereignty of God drives out fear. Or to say it more carefully and realistically, the daughters of Sarah fight the anxiety that rises in their hearts. They wage war on fear and they defeat it with hope in the promises of God. Mature Christian women 
know that following Christ will mean suffering. You, 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 when you've lived life a little bit longer, you know that everyone here has got some story in their lives that they are struggling with. Everyone is, has some suffering. But a mature Christian woman believes the promises like 1 Peter 3 verse 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. And 1 Peter 4 verse 19. Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator whilst doing good. And this is what Christian women do. They entrust their souls to their faithful creator. They hope in God and they triumph over fear. And the last little thing I want to say is that biblical womanhood focuses on internal adornment. In 1 Peter 3 verse 15 it says, And this is how the holy woman who hopes in God used to adorn themselves. This adornment refers back to verses 3 and 4. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. I, I loved that verse when I was a, a teenager. I used to memorize it all the time. Daughters of Sarah fight the anxiety that rises in their hearts with hope in the promises of God. We know this does not mean, when, when Peter says this, he's not saying don't wear jewelry, don't pay attention to how you look and take care of your appearance and don't, come, don't worry about your hair and Thing. I mean, it, there's a balance, isn't it? You have to, it's good and healthy to take care of yourself. But what he's saying is what he's, he's trying to change the focus. He's saying, don't make your focus, your main attention and effort on how you look on the outside, but focus on that beauty that is on the inside. Exert more effort and be more concerned with your inner beauty than your outer beauty. And you know, it's a really interesting thing because when you are settled on the inside, the outside becomes less of a concern and you can just not be worried about that all the time. But when you're focused on the outside, then the inside gets unsettled. And I think the one leads to the other. When a woman puts her hope in God and not her husband and not in her looks, when she overcomes fear by the promises of God, this will have an effect on her heart. It will give her an inner tranquility. And that's what Peter means by the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. It's not saying you all have, to, if you're a strong woman and you loud and boisterous, doesn't mean you have to now become all demure and no, it's not about a different personality. It's about an inner peace that's a settledness because you can put your trust in God and you can work and be humble and submitted to your husband because you know he is in control. God is in control. So that's what I want to bring today.